Hello and welcome to The Beethoven Files, episode 32. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to take a look at Beethoven's Piano Concerto No. 4 in G Major, Opus 58. The concerto was composed in the period between 1804 and 1807, a period in which Beethoven composed a number of important works, many of which were, if not exactly revolutionary, possessed of some very original qualities. It was dedicated to Archduke Rudolf and premiered by Beethoven himself, first in a private concert in March 1807 at the home of Prince Lokowitz, and later in December 1808 at a formidable and lengthy public concert that also included several of the composer's major works from that period. It is a great and extremely likable work. After spending more than a century in the shadow of the heroic Fifth Concerto, the so-called Emperor Concerto, Concerto No. 4 has, in more recent decades, definitely come into its own in terms of the number of performances garnered and in the thrust of critical opinion regarding the concertos. The seminal 20th century British musicologist Donald Tovey puts this concerto among the three greatest Beethoven concertos, along with Piano Concerto No. 5 and the Violin Concerto. And about these later concertos, and to an extent all concertos in general, he makes some interesting points. In one of his characteristically wide-ranging discussions of sonata form, Tovey suggests that a concerto is often considered less serious and consequential than a symphony because, being a vehicle for a soloist, it must include all those things that please soloists, and he adds, more superficial listeners involving perhaps gratuitous passages of virtuosity, and is therefore not an authentically symphonic work at all. The very naive listener, Tuffy states, enjoys the solo part as fireworks and misses all other values. By the way, he also makes it clear that listeners can go too far the other way and become conscientious objectors, as he puts it, to all popular elements in a concerto, and that would be equally unfortunate. Now, without suggesting that this characterization of soloists and listeners actually reflects reality, I'd like to reference a couple of other points that Tavi makes to suggest that his description of the typical concerto does not apply to the three great Beethoven concertos. Tavi states that the orchestra as employed in Beethoven's concertos is not only symphonic, but is enabled by the very necessity of accompanying the solo lightly to produce ethereal orchestral effects that are in quite a different category from anything in the symphonies. On the other hand, the solo part develops the technique of its instrument with a freedom and brilliance for which Beethoven has no leisure in sonatas and in chamber music. We'll see to what extent the qualities referred to by Tovey, among many other qualities, are manifest in this particular concerto. And we'll start naturally with the first movement. Here is the opening five-bar phrase in common time piano and marked dolce.
The first thing that strikes all listeners is, naturally, the fact that the opening phrase is introduced by the piano. We know from past episodes that the concerto form inherited from the later 18th century indicates that the first movement should begin with an orchestral exposition, or tutti section. Here, the soloist makes the initial statement, a very unusual gesture. And, as you heard, the theme itself has some interesting qualities. Beginning with a longer note on the third of the scale, it repeats that note four times, and then hovers around it for most of the first two bars, with a series of eighth notes before broadening out and eventually ascending in the next three measures, with the help of a florid little scale passage, before finally retreating back down to the leading tone. Its most distinctive element is probably its articulation pattern, with its combination of staccatos and slur markings, along with the accented syncopation in the third bar. But although the soloist may have the first word, it does not dominate the stage for long. After that initial five-bar phrase, the orchestra enters. And in fact, from that point on, things proceed more or less as you would expect in a normal orchestral exposition, but not completely. For one thing, there is the matter of key. As you heard, the orchestra, strings only initially, comes in pianissimo in B major, a key that is rather distant from G major, five sharps to one sharp, but is in fact a chromatic mediant relationship with the first key, something we've seen before, although this time the two keys are a major third apart. But we only stay in B major for a couple of measures, actually a little less, when we shift into an harmonically restless circle of fifths progression that will eventually close the phrase back on G major. Melodically, bars three and four of the orchestral phrase are based on a variant of measure three of the first piano phrase while the last four bars introduce a somewhat new melodic idea, which began, as you may have noticed, with an expansive melodic leap of a sixth, before gradually working its way down to the tonic note, accompanied by a clear, dominant tonic cadence on G. Following this clear cadence, the remainder of the orchestra now becomes involved, although the music stays very quiet. First, violins and oboes begin a new version of the melody, or at least the first two bars of it, starting at the tonic note in G major over broken chord accompaniment in the second violins. This melody expands and extends the idea from the first two bars, employing the same distinctive pattern of staccato and slur markings, and now introducing poignant accented nonharmonic tones on a regular basis. Here is a simplified example of that new version, first violins only, based on the opening two bars of the theme. The texture now becomes more complex as well, because the melody from the first two bars is soon imitated, 
first by the lower strings down an octave, and then by the woodwinds up an octave. After nine bars of this crescendoing along the way, a variant of the third bar of the original theme is finally introduced, and it leads us into a new, rather jagged motive that sounds almost militant in nature, and which turns out to be something of a preview of the second subject. Then, after a measure of eighth note triplets, we land on a sustained tonic chord, fortissimo, but dying away quickly to piano. It really seems as if all of this is a transition to the second theme. And it is, but it's not really a modulatory transition, because we end up where we started in G major. I mentioned that this is clearly a transition based on elements from the first theme, a pretty common occurrence. But it obviously doesn't modulate to the dominant, although it hints at it here and there. And of course, we heard that earlier brief foray into the key of B major already by measure six. But that non-modulation in this transition really shouldn't be a huge surprise, since we know that in the orchestral exposition of a typical 18th century concerto movement, we normally stay pretty close to the original tonic key. What is a bit more surprising is that after the transition ends up back on G major, just a couple of bars later, we begin the second theme, apparently in the new key of A minor. There hasn't been a methodical modulation to gradually introduce the new key. We simply find ourselves in that new key, with remarkably little preparation for it. You actually heard the new tonic of A minor appear right at the end of the last excerpt. The second theme itself doesn't come as much of a surprise, because its most distinctive rhythmic elements, as well as its triplet-based accompaniment, were previewed in the transition. Here's an excerpt starting with the second subject. Although the second subject is solidly in A minor at first, it even begins with an ascending A minor triad, it doesn't stay there long. After we hear a hint of E minor, we then hear the four-bar phrase that began the second subject in the strings, now moved to the oboe in C major, at least starting in C major. It actually modulates in transit to B minor. Then we hear the same phrase, now heard in the flute and bassoon as well as first violins, apparently in G major, but also, once again, modulating along the way, 
this time to F-sharp minor, reproducing the same pattern we just heard. From that point on, the new four-bar theme disappears for the time being, and we move on to another transition section, which will remind you a bit of the transition that brought us to the second subject. And the second subject itself is again quoted briefly as well. This will take us to the brief, but as many commentators have described it, majestic closing theme in D major. It begins with a descending D major triad with a dotted 8 16th note rhythm on beat 4, linking it to the second subject. But then it soars up an octave before retreating down the scale in a series of 8th note triplets. It then leaps up the octave again, this time descending in even quicker note values, 8th notes and 16th notes. This second exposition does not begin exactly as we might expect, perhaps because the soloist began the movement by quoting the first theme in its pure form, Beethoven sees no need to do so at this point. Instead, the soloist starts by referencing the eighth note motive from the first theme, but in the form introduced in the transition section, lacking that initial half note, rather than in the opening bars of the movement. Rather than a second fresh exposition of the original material, it's really heard more as a continuation of the last part of the orchestral exposition, which itself quoted the first theme right before coming to a close. But the piano soloist, after just three bars, introduces a cleverly altered version of that motive, transforming it first into a triplet-based variant and then a sixteenth-note version. From there, as the orchestra enters to accompany it by quoting the first four bars of the same motive, the soloist moves to an almost improvisatory cadenza-like flow of sixteenth-note scales, often doubled in thirds, climaxing with a trill. Afterward, a new passage in eighth-note chords, accompanied by pizzicato accents in the orchestra, is introduced, one that links back to the theme via its articulation marks. Here's an excerpt beginning with the closing bars of the first exposition and going into the section I just described.
Right at the end of my excerpt, you heard a bit of the orchestral tootie section that enters with the first theme motive in the same version heard in the transition, complete with broken chord accompaniment. Once again, the motive is subject to overlapping imitative entries in its brief four-measure span before the soloist returns. The soloist enters again with passage work that expands on the familiar first subject motive with new and interesting textural and rhythmic patterns, accompanied, quietly as usual, by brief references to the same motive in the orchestra, sometimes in a version akin to the famous fate motive, later associated with the Fifth Symphony. This four-note motive, which is implicit in the original theme in this concerto, is actually heard quite frequently almost throughout the movement, although the effect made here is completely different than in Beethoven's later symphony. Eventually, a somewhat new thematic idea is introduced, but before long, it becomes to resemble one of the ideas from the transition-slash-closing section that originally led us to the soloist's exposition. One of the things notable about that excerpt was the appearance of the rich and rather complex passage work for the piano soloist, the sort of passage work that Tubby may have been referring to as more available in the context of a concerto than a piano sonata. And a few measures later, we also heard the sort of delicate interaction between soloist and very quiet orchestral accompaniment that Tavi also referenced as one of the greatest attributes of this concerto. We're going to jump ahead at this point to the appearance of the second subject in the soloist's exposition. Only it's presented not by the soloist, but in another orchestral tutti section, starting in D minor. But we won't remain too long in that key, and, as in the first exposition, we visit other keys before the theme is abandoned, and we move on to the closing section that finally does close on D major, the key we expected all along. Here is the second subject, the theme in the orchestra provided with more delicate filigree by the soloist, and some of that closing section.
I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on the development section, but that is not to suggest that it's in some way trivial or inferior. Quite the opposite, actually. It's a particularly imaginative one with some unexpected twists and turns and wonderful coloristic effects. The section begins subtly. The orchestra refers again to the opening theme before handing it to the soloist for its more elaborate commentary which features cascading triplet bass chords in first inversion alternating with the repeated notes of the original first theme. Here are the last few bars of the second exposition blending into the beginning of the development section, initially in D minor. The soloist focuses on swirling arpeggios while the orchestra adds into the texture repeated fragments from the first theme in the woodwinds, while the strings alternate descending triplet figures that echo the descending triplet chords I just mentioned. Skipping to the next section of the development, the three-note motive still makes its presence felt in the orchestra, especially woodwinds, from time to time, sometimes in an imitative context, even as we move through a series of tonal centers. But the most remarkable passage occurs when pianist and orchestra combine to produce an almost ethereal sonority abetted by frequent trills from the soloist and very delicate, almost floating, 16th note triplet arpeggios. The mood does not remain ethereal for long, however, and eventually we crescendo boldly in preparation for the recapitulation. I'm only going to play a little of the recapitulation, the opening bars as a matter of fact, where the soloist brings back the first theme in the original tonic key, but now fortissimo, and with a difference. The melody is now in the left hand 
heavily embroidered with a 16th note pattern incorporating large ascending leaps in the right hand. Although the major themes from the exposition are all intact, although not exactly in the same order, the transition from the first subject to the second is naturally a bit different, since the key for the second subject now begins in G minor rather than A minor. There are naturally other points of interest in the recapitulation and final coda as well, but we're going to move on now to the particularly fascinating slow movement in E minor, 2-4 time, and marked andante con moto, for piano and strings only. The most fascinating thing about it, and the thing that may mark it as unique among Beethoven's concerto slow movements, is its supposed link to a scene in Gluck's opera Orfeo ed Eurydice in the original Italian version composed in 1762. There is anecdotal evidence to suggest that Beethoven knew the work, it would have been surprising if he didn't, since it was a major international success in various versions, and had it on his mind, one scene in particular when he composed his slow movement. Let me say right from the beginning that there are believers and non-believers in the proposition that Beethoven in some way based his movement on the scene in question. Before we go any farther in coming to any conclusions on that matter, Let's take a quick look at the scene in question in Gluck's early version of the opera. At the risk of oversimplifying a mildly convoluted plot, Orfeo has lost his beloved Eurydice, probably through a fatal snakebite. She now woefully inhabits the underworld, and the first act begins with Orfeo, the bereaved husband, along with her friends and companions, expressing their profound grief at her passing. But the god of love appears and indicates to Orfeo that the gods have granted him permission to go down to the underworld and reclaim her, if with his voice and harp he can sufficiently charm the furies and other denizens of that world to allow it. There is an important condition, and that is that he will not be allowed to look directly at Eurydice in the process. You can imagine the difficulties which that will eventually lead to, but that condition doesn't directly bear on our situation here. It's a tall order, charming the Furies so that they will allow Eurydice to return to the living world. But Orfeo has, after all, his harp and his reputation as a singer who can charm the beasts in the field and the very trees and rocks. So down he goes, reasonably full of confidence. In the second act, the Furies try to intimidate him with their ferocious and menacing dance, but Orfeo holds firm, adjusts his harp, and then sings a plaintive aria in E-flat major requesting Eurydice's release, begging the Furies to be merciful to him and have pity on his soul-tormented pain. 
but he does not get far before the chorus of furies respond most emphatically no to all his requests, originally in unisons and octaves, but later climaxing in a full tonic chord. Here's an excerpt from the first part of Orfeo's Entreating Aria. In the next chorus, in a grim E-flat minor, the Furies respond at greater length, explaining that the underworld is no place for Orfeo, and there is no room for hope since it is a place only for gloom and despair. Here's a brief excerpt. But Orfeo perseveres, renewing his lament and stating that he, like them, suffers the torments of hell. Finally, in the next chorus, the Furies begin to be affected by Orfeo's pleadings as they sing, What strange feeling comes over us, tender and pitiful, to assuage our implacable rage, inclining us to mercy and melting our hearts.
Okay, let's turn now to the opening measures of Beethoven's slow movement. The orchestral's opening statement is certainly stark, octaves and unisons only, almost martial in style because of the profusion of dotted note patterns and staccato markings, and altogether rather menacing in tone. There's no exact equivalent in the relevant complex of scenes in Orfeo, although there too the Furies do begin the second act with a grim minor key chorus, one which I didn't play, with the text who is this mortal one drawing near to this region of gloom? Even before their terrifying dance and before Orfeo begins his pleading. In Beethoven's movement, the orchestra's opening statement is much briefer, only four bars long, but no less ominous sounding. The pianist's much quieter response, marked molto cantabile, is a bit longer at eight bars. It's chordal, also clearly in E minor, although it starts on a dominant chord and tonicizes the relative major of G in the fourth bar. Melodically, it moves within a narrow range, the first phrase starting on B, ascending up a fourth to the tonic, and then slowly descending back to the starting point. The second phrase, rhythmically a bit more active, returns us quickly to E minor negating whatever slight sense of repose we might have achieved in the first phrase. It begins with a diminished seventh chord in E minor and works its way down to the tonic note with a more florid melodic contour, including some poignant non-harmonic tones along the way. Here's an excerpt showing both phrases. We do proceed from this point on with a series of exchanges between the orchestra and soloist, and the dynamic between the two parties, occasionally, but not consistently, resembles that heard in Gluck's scene complex. As you heard, the orchestra continues in much the same ominous mode, 
although it introduces a new ascending diminished triad on C-sharp to prepare for a key shift to D minor, and it extends the original four-bar phrase by one measure to confirm that new key. The soloist picks up on the new key, reinterpreting it as D major, but otherwise following its original pattern for the first four bars, ending this time on B minor. The second four-bar phrase begins back in D major, but varies the melodic shape this time, although it again closes in E minor. One thing you certainly noticed in my last excerpt was the fact that the orchestra's next entrance, forte as usual, very emphatically overlapped with, and to some extent obliterated, the last measure of the pianist's second phrase. Of course, we have heard an interruption something like this before, when the Furies repeatedly cut off Orfeo's pleadings with a resounding no. The effect is not quite the same, of course, at least not at first, since the orchestra interjects a two-bar utterance rather than a single dramatic shout. But as the movement unfolds, the orchestral interruptions become briefer and more frequent, and there is an increasing sense of urgency. So does Beethoven now follow Gluck's scheme with the orchestral interjections representing its implacable rage now becoming milder and ultimately softening to such an extent that it appears as if it is embracing the soloist? Not quite. The responses certainly become quieter, less aggressive in nature, but does the orchestra represent a force that is overcome by the soloist, or perhaps in some way placated by the soloist, or perhaps simply worn down by the soloist's entreaties? The final measures of the movement don't really help us much here, since they are all about the soloist with its quiet cadenza-like passage preparing for the zestful and dynamic finale rondo. In these final measures, the orchestra, regardless of what it may or may not represent, doesn't really enter into the picture other than to provide a quiet, sustained background for the soloist. 
It's true that we hear remnants of the angry dotted rhythm motive from the orchestra, but only in the lowest strings and at a pianissimo level. So it's more a reminiscence of the earlier conflict rather than an extension of that conflict or reconciliation of some sort. So can we definitely determine whether Beethoven modeled his slow movement after Gluck's version of Orfeo overcoming the wrath of the Furies? I mentioned earlier that in regard to this question, there are believers and non-believers, and now I think it's easy to see why. Does the slow movement echo the dramatic arc displayed in Gluck's scene complex? To some extent, yes, but there isn't really in Beethoven's movement the equivalent of the Furies relenting and even taking pity on Orfeo, also known as the pianist. It's true that the orchestra's dotted note interjections become quieter over time, and that may be Beethoven's equivalent of the softening of the Furies' rage. But of course, it's not quite the same. But I'm not suggesting that there is no relationship at all between Gluck's Orfeo and Beethoven's slow movement. The relevant scenes in the opera may well have inspired him to compose a slow movement that is all about the pianist's gentle statements being brusquely ignored by the orchestra. So we might conclude that Orfeo may have served as an inspiration for Beethoven, if not a formal roadmap. But now on to Beethoven's very attractive finale. The movement is in 2-4 time, marked vivace, and begins pianissimo. The ten-measure refrain is presented twice, in two different versions. The orchestra's is all rhythmic energy, almost gallop-like in its repeated rhythmic patterns, the most distinctive of which is a long, short, short, long pattern, the two shorter sixteenth notes heard as an upbeat to a quarter note. Melodically, it's quite simple, its opening phrase moving gradually up the C major triad. It's a little unusual to begin away from the expected tonic of G major, but we've seen more exotic beginnings than this one, and by the time we're into the second phrase, it's clear that we're headed to G major. The second phrase, again dominated by long, short, short, long patterns, although this time moving twice as fast, is a little more complicated melodically, but it's diatonic throughout, not a hint of chromaticism. The pianist version adds some interesting melodic details, fleshing the theme out with skips, passing tones, and trills, changing its character somewhat in the process. The refrain is in a rather common A, A prime, B, A form. You've heard the first two parts, and here is the contrasting B section, although, as you'll hear, it certainly isn't dramatically contrasting. In fact, it makes use of some of the same rhythmic patterns that dominated in the first two sections, although the melodic shape is different, perhaps actually more distinctive than in the A section. It consists of a single four-bar phrase, first from the strings, and then the soloist up an octave. Following the B section digression, closing with a two-bar tag, 
the full orchestra returns with a very robust variant of the A section, which turns into the transition to the first episode. Here is that B section going back to the variant of the A section and then onto the transition, marked by staccato octave leap figures in the first violins and busy 16th note scale lines in the lower strings. After four bars, the same idea is handed to the soloist and thereafter alternates back and forth between the two. As you heard, after the exchange between orchestra and soloist, and the key seemingly shifted toward D minor, the piano moves to a new figuration pattern, with the octave leaps down in the left-hand bass against mostly ascending chromatic movement in the right. With both hands in sixteenth notes, and with several offbeat accents interspersed. But the transition to the first episode is not completed, not quite yet. Before it arrives, Beethoven inserts a lovely passage built on mostly floating, scale-wise eighth-note triplets, which first crescendos and then quiets. It's described variously by commentators as a lead-in or preparation, and it does, in fact, prepare for the new key of D major, by mostly prolonging the dominant in that key. So, although it's really just the tail end of the transition, I think it's worthy of special attention. The first episode is a delicately lyrical one, Mark Piano and Dolce first introduced by the pianist in gentle but very effective two-part counterpoint with several subtle but expressive non-harmonic tones over a long tonic pedal in the double basses. The remainder of the orchestra, most notably the woodwinds, then introduce a variant of the theme, pianissimo. Woodwinds and strings now all contribute to a gorgeous and sensitive passage of relatively complex counterpoint, which crescendos briefly and then fades. At the end of that excerpt, you heard the contrapuntal passage break off, replaced by fortissimo figuration patterns from the soloist. 
This is true, first of all, because we now need a retransition to take us back to the refrain, but also because this is a concerto, and the soloist requires the opportunity to show off his or her glistening technique. So, for a while, the orchestra is very much in the background, adding the occasional punctuation mark, sometimes on the beat, sometimes on the offbeat while the soloist engages in a flow of mostly arpeggio-based sixteenth notes, often pedaled together into a euphonious flow. We begin fortissimo, as you heard, but it's not long before the pianist is reduced to pianissimo, only to crescendo forth once again. Occasionally, the orchestral accompaniment quotes the first three notes of the refrain theme in case we're wondering exactly where we're headed. As the transition draws to a close, we end up sitting on a dominant seventh chord on G for quite a while, because, as you recall, the refrain actually begins in C major, even though it ends up in G major. Here's a little of the end of the transition going to the second occurrence of the refrain theme, right after a little cadenza-like chromatic swirl by the soloist. After the refrain returns, we encounter the next transition. It employs the same octave leap motive, but it's fairly brief, and soon we arrive at our goal. Our goal is not exactly a new episode. It's really more of a development section, because this is another of those sonata rondos, a favorite of Beethoven's, where the second episode is replaced by a section which modulates freely for example, we hear the remote keys of B-flat minor and E-flat minor very early in the process, while cleverly developing motives from the refrain theme and the transitions by both soloist and orchestra, against more arpeggio-based figuration patterns and aggressive and very dramatic offbeat 16th note chord patterns from the soloist. Here's an excerpt from the development section finally going into that lovely, lilting triplet motive I singled out at the conclusion of the first transition passage, moving into a return of the first episode.
When the episode returns, it is now in G major, the original tonic key. In other respects, it's similar to the first occurrence, but with some differences in instrumentation, especially in the distribution of lines within the string section, the results being perhaps even more ingratiating than before. We break into solo piano 16th note arpeggio patterns, just as before, to begin the retransition back to the third statement of the refrain theme. Once again, the key is different, so the sonorities are different. When the 16th note pattern shifts to triplets this time around, we experience a somewhat striking key shift to E flat major, for which there was no earlier equivalent. Shortly thereafter, the violas, divided into two lines, present a new version of the theme in longer note values as the pianist also references it in a series of interlocking triplet motives. It's another lovely passage, but it's soon to be interrupted rather harshly when the opening motive of the refrain comes in fortissimo, harmonized with a full diminished seventh chord. That's not the real return of the refrain theme, of course, and Beethoven rather coyly delays that return until the soloist de-escalates the tension with a fading passage of slower-moving, gentle triadic figures, followed by another brief cadenza-like chromatic flourish. But Beethoven is not quite finished toying with us yet. We get another quirky little music box reference to the refrain theme, bouncing back and forth between right and left hands, and then the real refrain theme returns, the orchestra blasting away fortissimo. The soloist then takes us into another version of the original transition with its series of octave leaps, and then we hear more references to the opening motive in the orchestra, the 16th note arpeggio's return in the piano, dissolving into more gentle eighth-note triplets in octaves, which all but fade away, leading us into another fragmented and rather haunting reference to the first episode. From there, we move toward the final coda, after the cadenza, of which Beethoven composed two versions, one more virtuosic and the other perhaps intended for a student. After exiting the cadenza, Beethoven returns to the gentle triadic figures we heard not long ago, now assigned to the woodwinds, while the soloist plays faster-moving arpeggios against them, all of this calmly reaffirming G major and softening down to pianissimo. Then there is a fermata, and after that, something that comes as a little bit of a surprise, although it's something Beethoven has tended to do recently, as we've seen. A final presto section with final references to just about everything, crescendoing to a last boisterous cadence. 
I'm not going to play any of this, although, of course, it's well worth listening to. Instead, let me say just a few words in summary about the concerto as a whole. First of all, the first movement is a glorious one, almost an epiphany with its novel solo first beginning, its lovely first subject, its unexpected key changes, and its delicate and colorful accompanying orchestral textures. The second movement is almost equally remarkable, although for a very different reason. As many but certainly not all commentators have suggested, it appears to exploit the same dynamic between soloist and orchestra heard in the very famous scene complex from Gluck's Orfeo ed Eurydice. And if this is just a coincidence, which is certainly possible, we are still faced with the fact that the form of this movement is exceedingly novel and unlike any slow movement Beethoven had composed to that point. And finally, the Rondo Finale. It is not perhaps as exceptional a movement as the first two, but it is a very attractive one, with an extremely attractive first episode and a very clever development section. Taken altogether, this is a great concerto, a more than worthy successor to Piano Concerto No. 3 in C minor. For our next episode, we'll look at two of the famous Razumovsky String Quartets from Opus 59.